George Catlin painted the American West when it was still what we often call the Old West, with a capital O and a capital W. Catlin was an artist, a traveler, and a writer, but he's best known for his paintings, particularly his portraits of Native Americans, which he produced during and around the 1830s. Now, the 1830s, it should be noted, were a frontier period for the American West. The Louisiana Purchase had been signed a few decades previous, in 1803, and through that deal, the United States government purchased the majority of the central portion of the contemporary United States from Napoleon Bonaparte, who was the emperor of the Kingdom of France at the time. This deal gave the still quite young United States government control of all or portions of the modern-day states of Arkansas, Missouri, Iowa, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, New Mexico, Texas, Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, Louisiana, and a few pieces of what today are the Canadian provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan. So essentially, all the land from the Mississippi River to the Rocky Mountains was added to the territorial borders of the United States because of this deal, which doubled the geographic size of the country. The total population of this whole area that was added to the country was only about 60,000 at the time. So a very large area, very, very few people. If you're curious, the Adams-Onis Treaty, also known as the Florida Treaty, added Florida to the United States in 1819. Most of the U.S. Southwest was added to the country's borders after the Mexican-American War that took place between 1846 and 1848, which itself was a war fought because of the United States' annexation of the Republic of Texas the previous year in 1845. Alaska was added to the United States in 1867 as part of a treaty with Russia. Russia was concerned that this land that they held would be taken from them by the United Kingdom if war broke out between the two countries. So this deal allowed them to at least get something for this large swath of land that they controlled. And Hawaii became a U.S. state relatively recently, in 1959, nearly 100 years after Alaska was added. So George Catlin lived at a time in which the United States was about half the size that it is today, lacking most of the western portion of the country and the southern part from Texas over to California. It also lacked Alaska and Hawaii, but in his contemporary context, It was a country that had recently doubled in size because of the Louisiana Purchase, and there was all this land that needed to be explored and marked and mapped and connected to the eastern United States, which was the only portion of the country that was developed in the sense of having cities and towns and infrastructure. But even if there were not densely packed cities in this newly acquired territory, there were people out there They were just 
largely clustered down in New Orleans, which had long been a trading port. The majority of the 60,000 people in this territory at the time were down there at the mouth of the Mississippi River. And about half of those people, by the way, were slaves brought in from Africa. Everything north of that was sparsely occupied by French and British traders and fur trappers and a few random U.S. forts. And beyond that, there were all of the Native American cultures that had been there for quite some time, but which hadn't expanded their numbers in the way the newly arrived Americans had. It's worth noting that many of the numbers officially documented about this region at this time did not take into account, or at least fully take into account, the Native American populations. So numbers like 60,000 are quite suspect, even when they account for the smallish settlements that the U.S. government knew about and were willing to recognize at the time. So keep that in mind. Part of why the population numbers here are a bit wonky is that the Native Americans were perceived at this time as kind of a mysterious force to the Americans who lived in the East. They served as a bit of a bogeyman for the U.S. government. They were useful for shifting the blame when something went wrong, though at other times they were perceived as more like a natural hazard, like a flood or a tornado, something that it was wise to take into account, but not something that could be fully understood. Their behavior was considered to be unpredictable and even random. Now, there were positive, mutually beneficial relationships formed between some of the traders and trappers and the local Native American tribes. But the sting of being defeated by some of these tribes, some of which had partnered with the British during the Revolutionary War, before they went on to independently defeat many U.S. armies in conflicts spanning the hundred years after independence was declared, that was a wound that continued to fester, and that affected the relationships that they had. Even as their numbers were cut in half due to incursions from various European settlers throughout North America, the Native Americans continued to fight, and sometimes win, especially in skirmishes that took place further west in this more sparsely populated territory, where they knew the land a whole lot better than the newcomers. The collection of conflicts that took place during this time period is often referred to as the American-Indian Wars, though the battles varied in size and duration, and were between the U.S. government, independent U.S. entities like businesses and traders, and many different groups of Native Americans. And again, they mostly took place in this new swath of land that had recently been added to the U.S. territory. As a consequence of all that action and intrigue, this so-called American frontier took on a somewhat romantic connotation in the minds of people back in the cities and towns of the eastern United States. The battles, but also the friendly dealings between cultures, became fictionalized, even in their own time. New myths, like those involving famous figures like Daniel Boone and Colonel George Custer and the Lakota tribe holy man, Sitting Bull, were used by the U.S. government to reinforce certain cultural values. They were converted into morality tales, even when some of these figures were still alive. 
the preponderance of Old West and later Wild West tales stemmed from this period and the period immediately after it, as the frontier was explored and quote-unquote tamed by settlers who, to put it almost laughably lightly, had a love-hate relationship with the locals. George Catlin grew up in Pennsylvania and was fascinated by all these tales about the Native Americans, and he had had a few early childhood encounters with groups of Native Americans who visited his small town of Wilkes Bar when members of local tribes would visit his town to trade. Additionally, his mother was captured by a group of Native Americans when she was young, but it apparently wasn't a terrible experience for her. The stories that she would tell her son added to his interest about these groups, rather than repelling him. Catlin's early artistic work was of the very traditional sort, mostly realistic landscape paintings and drawings, the latter of which were reproduced as lithographs to be framed and used in books. His later period work, however, was shaped by a journey that he took with General William Clark in 1830. He was able to travel along with the general on a diplomatic mission up the Mississippi River, and as a result of that trip, he was able to visit 50 tribes over the course of six years. Two years after that, he ventured further north and west to what is today the border between Montana and North Dakota to spend time with local Native American tribes that had not yet encountered any Europeans or European culture. He met with a total of 18 tribes on that trip. And between those two excursions and a later trip down to Florida and back up to the Great Lakes, he produced over 500 paintings, many of them portraits of tribal chiefs and other notable people within these Native American tribes that he was visiting. Catlin's work was notable in that he portrayed these Native American figures in the same way painters were portraying figures of European descent. They were not caricaturized. They were presented as calm, realistic, actual human beings. After viewing these works as they toured Europe in 1839, the French art critic Charles Baudelaire said, quote, he has brought back alive the proud and free characters of these chiefs, both their nobility and manliness, end quote. Unfortunately for him, Catlin was not able to financially benefit from these works as much as he had hoped, and he was forced to sell them cheap to pay off debts in 1852. He then spent the next several decades trying to reproduce those works from sketches that he had done along the way during his travels, but these later works are considered to lack the same character and depth of the originals. He continued to produce other works as well, both drawings and paintings, and he wrote books about the customs and traditions of the tribes he had spent time with. Many of these later works can be found at the Smithsonian Museum today, alongside some of the artifacts that he collected during his travels. George Catlin made a name for himself by helping put faces and names to people and groups who had been othered by the government and people of the burgeoning United States. He also, in some ways, stoked the flames of interest in these groups 
both for better and for worse. Some of this awareness no doubt led to positive outcomes for these groups, now that more was publicly known about them, but there were also negative outcomes from that increased awareness and shift in perception. If such groups are less feared and no longer viewed as irrational natural forces, they're also perhaps viewed as hurdles that can be more easily bypassed and overcome. But for all his other accomplishments, one that stands out, in part because it kind of happened as an unintended side effect of his lesser-known work, his landscapes, is his sparking of a popular interest in the central United States, in the frontier, the Great Plains, the Rocky Mountain regions, in people back east. Catlin's lithographs and paintings of these regions were widely reproduced and shared, and went on to inspire other artists, like Cooper and Thoreau, who spread the gospel of nature for the sake of nature, of being beautiful for its own sake. And that message was spread even more widely and across a wider variety of mediums as the years went by. This view of the American landscape clashed dramatically with the then-prevalent ideology that nature was a challenge to overcome, a foe to defeat. Civilization was about taming nature, about knocking it down and sucking up its resources. Nature was something to consume and to make into useful, civilized things. Catlin and those who followed in his footsteps countered that ideology with beautiful works of art, portraying natural wonders that captured the imagination of the city-bound U.S. citizenry. In 1864, just six years before Catlin's death, Senator John Conness of California sponsored an act that would make Yosemite Valley and the Mariposa Big Tree Grove the first protected geographic regions in the country, an act that was important, he said, so that they might, quote, be used and preserved for the benefit of mankind, end quote. President Abraham Lincoln signed the act that same year, adding the condition that the lands would, quote, be held for public use, resort, and recreation, inalienable for all time, end quote. This act established precedent and a framework for what would become the first official national park in the world just seven years later in 1872, though they didn't use the name National Park at that time, except in casual conversation. That first official national park, Yellowstone National Park, was explored in the years leading up to its establishment as a protected area, and those who did the exploring supported keeping it pristine and protected from exploitation. The then diplomatically powerful Northern Pacific Railroad Company agreed and supported that effort, as they were on the lookout for places that people would actually want to visit up in the northwestern part of the U.S., and a big protected natural area seemed to align with that ambition, because the whole nature thing was something that people were coming to appreciate, again, in part, because of all the art that was being passed around that featured natural landscapes and subjects. And that is what I want to talk about today. National parks, where they came from, why they exist, what they represent, and what might happen next in a time in which their sanctity and utility is being called into question. 
You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to unspool today comes from Vox, and it's entitled, The National Park Service Wants to Triple the Entrance Fee at Some of Its Parks. The focal point of this article is a proposal that's currently working its way through the system here in the U.S. to increase the admission prices for some national parks during part of the year. How many is some parks? 17 at the moment. Though these 17 are some of the most visited national parks in the country, including Mount Rainier, Yosemite, Yellowstone, Grand Teton, Glacier, the Grand Canyon, Bryce Canyon, Sequoia and Kings Canyon, Zion, Rocky Mountain, and Joshua Tree, among others. And how much is the proposed price increase? Well, it would bring the price up to $70, and the typical price to enter these parks varies from location to location, but most current prices, after small bumps in recent years, fall within the $20 to $25 range. So $70 is a substantial, nearly threefold increase in price for these parks during peak traffic periods. These entry fees usually allow for a seven-day stay. And that's the cost for a whole car of people, not individual people. But value aside, relative to that initial typical price, $70 is quite the bump. And again, the increase would be in effect during the peak season of each year, from around May 1st to September 30th, though the exact dates would vary a bit due to seasonal and regional differences from park to park. The pricing for the rest of the year, according to this current proposal at least, would stay the same. Also, current deals like the park-specific annual passes that allow you to visit one park as much as you want for the entire year for $75 would still be available. And even better, and this is important to note for anyone who's thinking of doing some traveling around the U.S., the popular America, the beautiful National Parks and Federal Recreation Lands Pass will still be available. That pass offers unlimited access to every national park in the country, along with over 1,000 other government-owned attractions for one year for just $80. It's a hell of a deal. It's also worth mentioning that of the 417 National Park System units, In the United States, units referring to parks, monuments, preserves, historic sites, battlefields, recreation areas, and so on, only 118 of those charge any kind of entrance fee. All the others are always free, all the time. Of those 417 units, there are 59 national parks, but all of those units are funded, managed, cleaned, and maintained by the Department of the Interior. So, there are some obvious reasons to be upset here. Peak visitor season is as crowded as it is because those months tend to have the best weather and fall within a period where families can bring their kids and adults can more easily get off work to take the trip. This announcement is also arriving alongside another, broader announcement that the administration wants to cut the budget of the entire Department of the Interior, the department tasked with managing about 20% of the total territory of the United States, around 530 million acres of land, in addition to around 700 million acres of minerals underground. 
The Department of the Interior employs around 70,000 people and has over 2,000 locations where those people work. And again, they have hundreds of parks, reserves, historic monuments, battlegrounds, and other such things to maintain and manage as well, including the 59 national parks. The budget that has been proposed for the Department of the Interior would cut its funding by about 12%, knocking about $1.6 billion off its budget each year, leaving it with around $11.6 billion to spend for all projects. And the National Park Service is just a small part of that larger whole. They have a lot of responsibilities, a lot of things to spend that money on. The head of the Department of the Interior has said that he is upset about this proposal and will fight it, and there's still a chance that another proposal will win the day instead, perhaps giving them something closer to their usual budget. But there's reason to believe that even if that happens, the national park system portion of the Department of the Interior will not receive as much money in the coming years, because this budget proposal includes a reduction in the percentage of total money given to the Department of the Interior, which can be spent on park-related activities, while an increased portion of that budget has been earmarked for the development of fossil fuel-related investments on public lands. Oil, gas, coal, of that lower budget made available to the Department of the Interior, an increased percentage would be set aside to explore and expand offshore drilling efforts and to fast-track mining and related permits meant to help the oil and coal industries build more infrastructure. Also included in the budget is a proposal to open up the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in the northwestern part of Alaska for oil and gas leasing, meaning oil and gas companies would be able to explore and exploit that land for its resources, something that has been seriously proposed and supported by energy companies since 1977, but which has thus far been prevented by those wishing to keep that area protected as a refuge. So what we have here is a situation in which this ground-level controversy is at least in part serving as a proxy for another related but higher-order controversy. Yes, there are reasons to be upset about the peak season price increase at some of these parks. It will be an additional cost burden on some families who are perhaps short on funds and whose tax dollars are already paying for the park to be maintained in the first place. The cold economic, it's good for the customers too argument is that raising the price is actually better for people wanting to visit the park during peak season because those who do show up and pay the increased fee won't be forced to wade through the same crazy large crowds they might otherwise experience. This, of course, is small reassurance to those for whom an additional $50 could mean the difference between seeing the Grand Canyon and planning a staycation with the kids, but it's part of the argument being made and is the rationale behind a lot of price bumps in a lot of different industries. A better argument in favor of the peak season price increases, in my mind, are that funds from these higher fees are meant to be used to help repair aspects of these parks, which have long needed to be repaired, to be upgraded, because they are, in some cases, falling apart 
As a result of the increased prices, roads, bridges, campgrounds, water lines, bathrooms, and other visitor services will be repaired and brought up to code. There's apparently a substantial backlog on some of these repairs, and the popularity of the national park system, which brought in around 330 million people in 2016, has only added to that burden. More people means more traffic, means more wear and tear on the infrastructure. The cost increases are meant to help address these issues in the most painless way possible. The perceived connection between the smaller and larger issues mentioned a moment ago are captured pretty well in a comment left by someone calling themselves Oliver H. on the National Park Service Facebook group. After the announcement of the entrance fee increase, a comment that was also quoted in that Vox piece, quote, it's a ploy to reduce visitor numbers as a prelude to selling off park resources to corporations for extraction, end quote. Now, that is a big claim. And as far as I'm aware, there's no confirmed data to back up that assertion. Is it conceivable that this administration would decrease the Department of the Interior's budget so that they will have to raise prices, so that in turn, the most popular national parks will have lower traffic in the coming years, so that in the future it'll be easier to say that these parks are not popular enough to protect, making the implicit argument that we should allow oil and coal companies to drill and mine there? Because what's the point of maintaining and defending these unpopular parks anyway? Yeah, I mean, it's conceivable, but so are a lot of things. And those things also are not necessarily true. And it behooves us to be aware of such possibilities, but not treat them in the same way that we would treat verified facts. The Occam's razor view of this situation, the simplest explanation, is that it is what it seems to be, a move by the administration to bolster energy infrastructure and the companies that build that infrastructure while cutting funding to things deemed to be less important. Part of that first goal is to start opening these parks and refuges for resource exploitation, but I'm guessing that that goal is a longer-term one, even a go-ahead to start drilling up in Alaska at the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge would require an act of Congress. It's not something that can be granted by a president throwing his weight around. But even as we discuss the economics of these potential next steps, we shouldn't ignore the significance of these parks and other landmarks through the economic lens. It would actually be a smart move on several levels to make sure we know which resources are there, ready to be sucked up and used just in case the geopolitical situation shifts, and oil prices are used against us or our allies. A little surgically precise mining or drilling would be small concerns compared to the tough choices that might have to be made if something substantial and negative happens to the U.S. economy or to our military, forcing us to re-delegate a massive amount of funds away from things like parks and toward things like energy infrastructure or intercontinental ballistic missiles. It's also arguably quite forward-looking to have dual-use infrastructure up in northern Alaska. Now, today, before the Arctic Ocean is open water for most of the year, 
because the rest of the century will likely, at least in some part, be defined by who controls those channels and which trading docks and fleets were built in the years leading up to that moment. There are a lot of mineral resources and other desirables in those waters and along the continental shelves that are only just now becoming accessible. The strategic importance of ports and fleets in an area that will bring the northern powers way closer to each other geographically cannot be overstated. That is a valid realm of concern and warrants preparedness. That said, part of what is so incredible about something like a wildlife refuge or national park is that we could exploit them in this way. And I use that word in the neutral sense of making full use of a resource, not the derogatory sense of bleeding something dry. We could exploit these lands, but we don't. That's what makes such areas so special. There is a subsection of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge that is designated the 1002 area. That's the land naming convention up in that area. And in the 1002 subsection, there is a subspecies of caribou called the porcupine caribou, which is disappointingly similar to a normal caribou. I looked up photos expecting to see something really crazy, but it's named for the Porcupine River, which runs through the 1002 area, not because of any visible spikiness. And the calving grounds of these unfortunately not spiky porcupine caribou is right there in the region where oil companies want to start prospecting and eventually to start drilling. Again, I think there are rational arguments to be made on both sides of this discussion. When there's only so many resources to go around, and choosing to have one over the other is zero sum. On one hand, you have the relatively easy to quantify benefits of having more locally controlled energy resources, alongside the potentially dual-use trade infrastructure that would emerge alongside it, docks and ships and a higher population of people in a region that could, within a few decades, become one of the fastest-growing and most important economic zones in the world. On the other hand, you have the less-easy-to-quantify benefits of setting aside land and allowing all the living things and other quote-unquote resources on that land to remain untouched. Because you can. It's a statement about soft power and showing the world that you can afford to do this, can allow this land to remain unproductive in the sense of not being optimized for human settlement and utility. I mentioned earlier that Yellowstone was the first national park worldwide, and that's true in the modern sense of the word. But there was another similar region in Mongolia which was set aside around the same time that the United States was becoming a country. The U.S. was established in 1776, and the Bokht Khan Mountain, a landmark in Mongolia that overlooks the country's capital city of Ulaanbaatar, was declared sacred and protected by the local government in 1778. It received approval for this protected status from the emperor five years later, in 1783. It's also worth mentioning that after Yellowstone was established as the first, quote, public park or pleasuring ground for the benefit and enjoyment of the people, end quote, which, questionable language aside, was still pretty revolutionary, 
numerous other countries around the world set aside their own parks and lands for the benefit of their people and potentially to attract tourists as well. The benefits of having such protected spaces, such common areas that would not succumb to the downside of the tragedy of the commons, wherein those who can take will take as much as they like, draining a resource until it's worthless. The benefits of having such spaces were clear. To these governments, both modern and those existing in Mongolia two and a half centuries ago, even though the dollars and cents, the hard power arguments for such spaces are not compelling, these are still attractive spaces because of other soft power benefits that they provide. Not the least of which is a boost for the brand of the nation that does set them aside because they can and because it's assumed they value that aspect of their collective heritage and geographic good fortune. I don't want to get too political in this episode, but like with most discussions about anything, really, there are some interesting political facets to this story. Consider that national parks were, for a very long time, championed by primarily conservative politicians and citizens. The Sierra Club, which today tends to favor progressive values and politicians, had a membership base that was primarily middle-aged Republicans back in the 1930s. The values that were being lobbied by this nonprofit group were aligned with their ideals preserve and protect our national heritage. Don't allow what God has granted us to be destroyed by short-sighted opportunists, which at the time, in many cases, meant people who were supporting progressive laws and measures that would lead to the development of these areas rather than the preservation of them. Now, a little aside here, this was at the tail end of the flip that began at the turn of the century, during which Republicans and Democrats in the United States kind of swapped platforms. During the Civil War, the Northerners were the Republicans, Abe Lincoln was a Republican, but that term meant support for what would today be considered more progressive values. The Southerners during the Civil War were Democrats, and their values at the time were more aligned with what we would today consider to be conservative politics. Many historians date the beginning of that flip to the rise of a Democratic politician, in the traditional sense of the word Democrat, named William Jennings Bryan, who came to prominence by blurring the lines between the parties, calling himself a Democrat, but coming out in favor of the government playing a role in ensuring that social justice is served. In other words, favoring a larger government so that the government could help ensure that more people get a fair shake. For a while after Bryan entered the stage, both Republicans and Democrats were all about the expansion of the federal government so that more people could be taken care of, but eventually the Republicans flipped their position to the opposite of what it once was, adopting the cause of a small federal government with a state government-focused platform. That happened in the 1930s and is still broadly the case today. So these Republicans who were in favor of national parks, of conservation efforts, were of the modern variety. They were Republicans post-flip, so their values were similar to the Republicans of today. Conserving and protecting these spaces was totally within their wheelhouse because it was conservation-related, even though, in regard to most other things, they were very anti-federal government expansion. 
the modern conservative opposition to the National Park Service and many of the activities of the Department of the Interior is outlined in what I consider to be a well-expressed, pretty clear-eyed manner in a recent National Review article entitled The Distant Conservative Heritage of the National Park Service. This article, in summary, says that the park system was great at first, but like so many things the federal government does, it has overstepped time and time again. At this point, the majority of the spaces under the aegis and protection of the U.S. government should not be. It isn't anything special. It's just land. And it's land that we could be doing a lot more with in terms of resource extraction, agriculture, and private ownership. Further, it is land that the federal government should not be deciding how to handle in the first place. The states should decide that. These are fair points. As I mentioned before, there can be severe downsides to not making full use of our available resources, just as there can be severe downsides to the overuse of these resources, failing to come up with more sustainable options and destroying environments and plant and animal life, which may then become endangered or disappear forever. How much money might be added to the coffers of the U.S. government if the calving grounds of the porcupine caribou are destroyed? How much good could potentially be done with that amount of money? How much is each porcupine caribou worth if we were to try to put a dollar figure on each and every one? How much is it worth to wipe out the entire subspecies? And who decides when the push-pull between these interests falls out of balance? At the moment, some of these issues can be decided, at least to a large degree, by the president, while others require congressional approval. In almost all cases, there are also opportunities for states and state governments to weigh in as well. There are a lot of externalities at play here, too. The recent and ongoing debate over new oil pipelines is instructive here, as many planned pipelines, especially those in the Americas, have faltered as a result of price-fixing by the oil cartel OPEC. This collection of countries and oil interests that make up OPEC determine the prices of oil amongst themselves to ensure that they don't compete with each other, which would lead to ever-lowering oil prices. And at the moment, it's suspected that they are strategically keeping the prices of oil low to run newly developed and developing potential oil shale production facilities out of business before they can even get started. Oil shale is more expensive to process into usable fuel and other products, and if the price of oil is not high enough to justify those additional production costs, these pipelines and their associated infrastructure, including the wells and processing plants, never get built. Or in some cases, they get built, but they're never used. So many of the planned wells in North and South America just don't make economic sense right now because of the current low oil prices. And those prices are influenced, in large part, by OPEC. And that group is keeping the prices low, artificially, to run competitors out of business before they can even become competitors. Public protest has also played some role in determining which resources are tapped and which are left undeveloped, though the primary power that the public wields here seems to be threatening the careers of politicians who have their hands on the wheel. 
if they can make a development project too politically toxic to support, or contrarily can show that their support as voters is based on that politician's efforts to get a new mine constructed, leading to new jobs and other opportunities in the area, that tends to move the dial more than most other things. In most regards, though, the decisions being made here are somewhat protected from the meddling of non-politicians and non-lobbyists and non-resource cartel members, which sucks for everyone outside of those hallowed political halls, but it's the nature of the system. So let's double back to that original article. National park prices are being raised at a moment in which, culturally, there's a massive cultural war happening pretty much around the globe between many different groups, but these groups often fall broadly to either side of some kind of progressive versus conservative or globalized liberalism versus nationalized authoritarian divide. The issues of conservation and sustainability have become increasingly hot-button issues in many countries, but especially the U.S. in recent years, because of the concrete consequences of our past lack of effort in this space, but also because to some people, there is still debate about whether anything is even happening at all. The science falls squarely in favor of humanity contributing to global climate change, and the only real debate between legitimate scientists is how much we are affecting the numbers and what we might do to counter the worst of the current and coming effects. But there are many and very well-funded misinformation efforts meant to muddle this information, which has left a huge portion of the U.S. population seeing sustainability and conservation as mere political issues, not scientific ones. In other words, sustainability and conservation are topics to debate and hate on the other side about, not topics to think about critically and objectively with a focus on desired outcomes. And that just further feeds but is also fed by the aforementioned culture war that is taking place. This is why this news item, which isn't particularly severe, especially when compared to everything else that's happening in the news, is news in the first place. The conflation of this discussion about balancing the pros and cons of how we use natural resources, which is a very legitimate discussion that we should be having, with party politics, is making the entire topic toxic and almost undiscussable. It's turning things like national parks which most people in isolation, politics aside, would consider generally good things into pawns to be used against the perceived enemy. Now, there will always be economic interests that want to strip mine the Grand Tetons or convert all the sequoias in the world into lumber. Their job requires that they push for as much as they can get because they are employed by corporate entities that require they see the world in terms of dollars and cents and nothing beyond that. On the other side, there are people who would have civilization step backward completely to allow the whole world to become a wildlife refuge, which is a neat thought on some levels in theory, and may be possible at some point in the future when our technology catches up with our ambitions, allowing us to establish modern societies based on 100% renewable principles. But at the moment, such a thing would not be anywhere near practical. This is why balance is important, and why the current state of this discussion, namely the general lack of a coherent discussion, is a true bummer. 
And that's true of this topic and many other important topics that we should be talking about in a logical, rational, polite way, but we are not. As soon as we decide that the other team, our respective teams determined for us by political party branding experts, is full of immoral morons, we reduce our chances of finding a healthy equilibrium in terms of how these issues play out today, but also what they evolve into next in the very near future. The book that I'd like to recommend today is a little bit unusual, maybe not, based on the relative geekiness of this show, but it's entitled Understanding Wall Street, and it's the fifth edition that I read, which seems to be the most recent edition, was updated in 2009, and this book was written by Jeffrey Little. This book provides really great fundamentals if you've ever been curious about how Wall Street and all of the interconnected pieces of money markets and stocks and bonds and options trading and Forex and all of these things fit together. This book does a really great job of tying all those pieces together and explaining the fundamentals of them how they work, why they work that way, how they started out, a good bit of history to contextualize it all. I am currently educating myself about stocks, about economics, a bunch of things that I knew a bit about but didn't know well. I've been doing kind of a deep dive into these things recently, and this was one of the better books that I read, amongst the other books, both broad and more specific about certain things, certain elements of the stock market thus far. So if you are looking to understand such things and do not want to wade through an entire textbook on the matter, this book provides a lot of the same information that you would find in a textbook, plus more, plus it's written a lot better than most textbooks, in my opinion. Though I will say the one major shortcoming of this book is that it was published in 2009, and the world in general, but the stock market and related industries have also changed a substantial amount in that period of time. So the chapter on the internet in this book is almost laughably outdated. It's still somewhat usable, but the recommendations for specific websites and the explanation of what the internet is is pretty hilarious. The rest of the book, though, is super useful, especially if you are coming into this topic knowing just a little bit but not much of the depth of what happens within this space, within practical economics, as was the case for me. That's Understanding Wall Street, 5th edition, by Jeffrey Little. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at xlifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. Feel free to reach out and say hello on social media. I am at Colin is my name pretty much everywhere. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm